Welcome to the show. Thank you for taking part in this immersive listening experience. A meaningful existence is a moving target that no matter how close, will always be out of reach. We hope this message finds you with an outstretched hand. As we attempt to uncover complex truths, remember, life's toughest questions can be answered if we all just focus on one thing. Being good people. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, I was joined by Dr. Jen Patterson. She is an internal family systems practitioner. Internal family systems is a frequently used evidence-based psychotherapy, helping people by accessing and healing their protective and wounded inner parts. In today's episode, we talked about the intricacies of internal family systems and how we're all made up of various parts and how their interplay affects our lives. If, as you're listening, you're curious about more information, there are various links and resources available to you in the show notes below. Before we begin, if you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider giving the show a rating. It really does help us out a ton. Enjoy the show. Dr. Jen Patterson, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. What at its most basic level is internal family systems? That's a great question. It's a funny one because the name is confusing to most people. When someone hasn't heard of it, they almost always go to the idea that I'm working with people's entire families. And I don't know if they're imagining something like where people are all present or you're just like imagining they're present, but that's not what it means. It's about the family that's inside of each of us, of parts of us, like your inner critic and your perfectionist and your inner children and, um, you know, those kinds of that family. Um, that's kind of just defining what an inner family is though, which isn't your question. What the work is, is about finding and developing a relationship between whatever the core of our inner light is with those parts so that we can just be calmer, happier, you know, well-integrated people. Yeah. Yeah. How did you first get involved in uh, internal family systems? By kind of diving, I tend to do that sometimes when something really takes my fancy. So I had recently left my marriage and was doing a lot of, I don't know, soul searching, reading about trauma and mental health and things. And I was reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score. There's a Mm. chapter in there on internal family systems. And for some reason, I think because it described the modality as non-pathologizing, you know, like, oh, we don't, none of these names mean really mean very much like borderline personality disorder or what have you. Um, I don't think that was the only thing that fired me up about it, but I went over to the computer and that was the summer of 2018 and uh, the IFS foundation was doing a meeting, you know, their annual meeting in Rhode Island that year in November. I just registered for the conference, bought a plane ticket. I didn't know what IFS was really. Or even that they trained and certified non-therapists, which I am not a therapist, uh, but off I went and I never have really looked back. So, Very good. Something that's really fascinating to me about IFS, uh, I've read the introduction to the IFS book um, very recently in preparation for this conversation. And I think it's one of those, and you probably get this all the time, It's it's one of those things that from an outside perspective, you can look at and 
chalk up to being woo woo or mm. hokey dokey or that sort of thing. Sure. And whatever level you are looking at it with, whether it's, you know, viewing parts and the self as these very separate real entities that exist within you, mm-hmm. or I think for the people who are maybe hesitant, they can at least see some of these things as a framework to base things off of. And that's something that I recognized right away when I started looking into this was mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how deep you go in terms of your acceptance of this mm-hmm. or how or how reserved and pulled back you are. You can still look at internal family systems as this framework to view yourself and view your relationship with the things that have happened to you in your life from, Mm -hmm. which is why I think it's such a cool system to look at. Yeah. That is a great question. I'm not sure that was a question, but whether to dive into the woo aspect or keep a scientific framework is kind of near and dear to me. You know, I have a, a PhD in biology, but I have really shifted in the other direction just personally that's not necessarily necessary for ifs but some of the things that we find are quite fascinating and really kind of pushing i think at some of the boundaries around what we think of as real within ifs i mean we're working in the subconscious so there's stuff there um when you use your imagination, we still can get somewhere. So you don't, you, you, you're right that it's not necessary to view parts as real entities that are within you. But when you can kind of relax the need to know one way or the other, the work is more powerful because if we're, even if we're just talking about memories and access to memories, the way a smell will invoke a memory, getting in our bodies can really help us get into memory. What is that? You know, I think is the question that you're asking and I don't have a good answer. I don't know how coherent all that was, but. No, that makes sense. It, it makes me think that the imagine the imagination is part of reality, no matter how you cut it. You know, mm-hmm. some people are are more imaginative than others. Some people are more creative, like all things. But as human beings, we have the ability to think and imagine in the future, made up things. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the best pieces of literature that people love and hold dear to their heart their entire life are just like made up things that people dreamt of and, and thought of and created, right? And so as you go through life, depending on the level of imagination that you hold and, and and you sort of deploy on the world. I think that it's fair to say that at some level, the real and the non-real, it's kind of irrelevant because it's all part of your experience. Sure. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's, for, in my experience, I'm sort of being shown again and again and again, the powerfulness of this work, it's kind of beyond imagination. At least I think so. That's how I experience it. You know, in one of my sessions with my own therapist, which is easier to share because I forget, like, who have I asked what I can share? I had a part saying something about water, water. And I had a skeptical part saying, that's a random word that has nothing to do with the discussion that we're having. And I'm not even going to say it, but it's like, okay, I have, I would just say that to my therapist. I have a skeptical part saying, don't say this, but the word water keeps coming up. And ultimately we get to a memory where I was like really small, like 
like diaper small thrown into the pool, you know, without my thingy. So I kind of sink. And obviously I survived. Somebody was right there. I think I was underwater for a few seconds, but, um, you know, this terrifying thing. So it often works like that, you know, and again, I don't know how much that answers the question of the model of parts and what we can say about what they really are. But certainly the subconscious holds things that it will share with us. It, right? What do I mean by that? Well, we don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, and maybe you can explain this for the listener who doesn't know what we're talking about. What at a basic level from internal family systems is the self and what are parts? I know you yeah. just said you can't answer what parts are, but what's the framework that you operate from? Sure, sure. Well, the part parts are kind of what we inhabit as we go through the world, right? So there are extreme parts or parts take on extreme roles rather when there's trauma. So if you have a tendency to get really angry and when someone gets cuts you off in the road, that's a part with some rage that's reacting to most likely shame, like, oh, that person thinks I'm whatever, whatever. Even if we're not, and usually we're not, thinking about the that little you know sequence that i just said right there's like there's a young part for example that was criticized maybe and when someone cuts you off that one gets we'll say triggered but the rage stops you from feeling that so the whole point of that extreme role is to not have us feel those childhood pains so yeah we don't notice because that's the whole point. And if I can just take it a step back, because I think I'm jumping ahead. And if you have no exposure to this model, that's not going to make a lot of sense. Let's say you're little and something happens. Like I get thrown in the swimming pool and I think I'm going to die. Some other part of me is going to say, oh my God, we can never feel this again. This is too much. It's terrible. So I'm going to do whatever. I don't even remember kind of what that one was about. Um, Actually, I think it was almost a people pleasing thing, like giving my power away. Like I'm going to, I'm going to people please. We'll just go with that. And that way I'll never be hurt, you know, because I'll be appeasing everybody around me. So that's the pattern, right? There's this little one with a wound and a protective one saying, I'm going to do this thing. So we never feel that way again. It doesn't work. First of all, because the, the part with the doing the protecting, in this case, the people pleasing picked up the tool in childhood and it's not a great tool usually. Um, and that you end up getting triggered anyways. Um, but that's the kind of pattern. Those are the patterns that we develop, but it turns out no matter how much trauma there is, we all have this, you might call it soul. You might call it non-self like Buddhist talks about this non-self or non-ego place that can, interact with those parts, even heal those parts, like the little one. And then the protective one, when the little one is healed, the protective one says, oh, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to people please anymore. And there's no figuring it out and willpower and forcing yourself out of that that role or hating yourself out of that role. It's just, you just heal the little one and the, the protector doesn't want to do that anymore. They don't, our, our protective parts that do those things, they don't like it. They don't want to be doing those things. When you conceptualize these parts, uh, I know they usually stem from traumatic things or stressful, I guess, and it could be positive stress, right? 
The uh, parts exist of their own accord. It's the roles that they take on that can be caused by trauma. Okay. Could you explain that a little more? Like I might have a part that loves to, to write fiction and a part that loves to be in nature and a part that like is really great with kids and a part that is like really interested in science and is going to excel at my job. And I can go through life. I, I didn't have any trauma. I go through life with those parts and then everything's great. Or those same parts can become perfectionist and um, critical and whatever because of what happened, because they're protecting young parts that got hurt instead of young parts that got nurtured. I mean, it's normal. Does our brands need to be, um, they're too complicated to be one thing is how I've kind of heard people talk about the complexity of brain and why there are parts. Yeah. So it, it's almost like a, you are not one thing right? In, in terms of identity. You are, you are many things. Right. And when we heal parts, we're helping to heal them of the extreme roles they're in. We're not trying to, we don't get rid of them. They just are like, oh, now I can paint. Oh, now I can rest. Oh, now whatever. They're not gone. Okay. And so uh, in in a way, these parts based off of, you know, whatever they are or whatever they mean, Mm -hmm. the things that happen to us, I'm I'm trying to think of a a more clear example for for somebody who's listening. Um, I feel like these are things that I understand and having read the book, I've created this framework for it in my head Sure. and and talking to you, I'm just trying to keep all of it straight because it is sort of confusing, right? Sure. But it's hard for me to, yes. And, and so, um, for example, say somebody who's young goes through sexual trauma and now there's this piece of them that has been has been created or, or maybe was already there. And now that's because they've gone through this, they long for intimacy or um, some sort of connection that makes them feel safe. And so how that contextualizes in their adult life is they have lots of sexual partners and they, um, you know, sleep around a lot. And as soon as somebody gets really close to them in their heart, they move on and go try to find somebody else. That's more of a shallow relationship is, would that be a good example Kind of, I would explain it a little bit differently in that, um, okay, there's a sexual sexual trauma that creates a belief. The, the little ones are always holding beliefs about themselves, right? Kids always make it about them. And so they might say, oh, I'm really, I'm so terrible that, or often like I caused this, right? I, I was too feminine. I mean, kid isn't going to use that kind of word, but I'm too much simply. And so if I act like too much or, or I'm too pretty, I'm going to get hurt. And so, um, this is the, the example used is great, but as I say that a different one comes to mind and like obesity is very highly correlated with sexual trauma. And so, okay, I'm going to hide myself in this way. That's not conscious. No, that's, I don't think. Uh, I mean, there's some in some cases, but not certainly not all of them. And promiscuity might be something like uh, the little one saying, you know, taking on this belief that they are inherently bad, like around the causing of it. And so if I have lots of partners, it's going to reinforce that belief. I'm having I haven't having trouble kind of coming up with the, the actual um, an actual story there. 
um, let me, let me, I know what you're, I know what we're trying to do here. Let me, let me think of a different one. Let's say instead of sexual abuse, it's just, just normal physical abuse and some child is hit a lot. They might end up with a really strong outer critic, inner critic rather, you know, like, oh, I'm such a piece of shit because the critic wants to beat them up before the dad gets to them. Right. If I, if I punish you, it's going to be not as bad as if dad does. That's the kind of pattern that is really common. Does that make sense? That makes sense. The, I, I have gone through this before and if I'm hard on myself and I just get it right the first, well, I, I get it right before it gets to this person that could harm me, then I'll be yeah. safe. Yes. Yes. That's almost a little bit of a different nuance, but yes. yes. Okay. Some of those critics are, are like, not just make sure you get it right. Make sure you look good. Make sure you get a good grade, but like you're a useless piece of trash. You should throw yourself in traffic. That kind of critic is the one that's saying, I'm doing that because if dad gets to you, it's going to be even worse. Mm. And, and I think you're talking about the one that says, make sure you get, make sure you get that all right so that you don't get in trouble. So that, yeah, those are two different tools that critics would use depending. Okay. Yeah. And even talking to you, and I think this is one of the things that makes this such a unique thing is everybody's experience is so individual, right? Mm -hmm. And, and totally. for you to be able to identify the a nuanced difference that small with just a, a change of language is, is fascinating to me. Yeah. Another really powerful aspect of it is that you start to see other people as a conglomerate of parts and they're just compassion kind of goes through the roof, even for people's parts that you don't particularly like, because you understand that they're doing the things they're doing to protect some wound underneath. Yeah. I've said that a number of times in conversations on the show where it's very obvious when you think about it, but if you ever find yourself being frustrated with somebody else, if you just followed the logical conclusion from the moment they were born and everything that's ever happened to them and all the decisions they've made, well then obviously like they're where they are, you know? And I think just having yeah. that in the back of your head when you interact with others is a very powerful tool for mm -hmm. being compassionate and understanding. Yeah. In relationships too, because mostly our parts tend to get the opposite of what they want, you know, especially if we're, if we have attachment issues and I want closeness and so I get clingy and then my partner feels um, a little claustrophobic about that and they push away. They both want, you know, closeness, but it ends up just being kind of lost in the dance of those protective parts. Are all parts usually protecting you in some way? No, but they're the ones we tend to talk about because they're the ones that uh, cause the problems that people focus on, right? But like I said, the one that's like just creative or um, nurturing or whatever the case may be, all the, all the kind of traits that we think that we want to get to, if we just heal, it'll be like this. What are some of the other, I know you gave some examples there, but what are some other tools that parts are used for? The protect, like protective parts? Yeah. What do they do? What are other things they do, you mean? Yes. Well, maybe what we can 
another way to break it down, we talk about protective parts, not in a session, you don't need to know this, but if you're curious about the model, we talk about firefighters and managers. You probably read a little bit about that. Yeah. And they're, both of those categories are still protecting you from the pain of some inner child, right? But the managers are trying to be proactive. They want you, that little one to not get triggered at all. And then firefighters are reactive. They do what they do when the little one's already been triggered. So your perfectionist is like, I'm going to be perfect so that I never feel shame. Right. That never works. Can't be perfect. And so once that gets that shame kind of gets fired up, kind of on fire with some shame, then the firefighter will come in and binge or shop or scroll or drink or rage or whatever it is. And those are more destructive things. That's part of why the analogy is so great. If your house is on fire, the fireman's going to, you know, ax down the front door. It doesn't matter. Mm. Those things can sometimes work inversely of one another. Is that true? Uh, what do you mean by inversely? Like they're almost, I believe the term in the book polarized. is polarizing, yeah. right? Where where one part of you is doing something and it's setting another part of, of you off. And and they're kind of in this game of tug of war where, who, you know, if anybody, if anybody stops doing this thing, we're going to set the system off. And so the the self-critic doubles down and then the binging or whatever that firefighting uh, part yeah. is also doubles down. Food is a great one for an example of that. You know, you've got this very rigid manager part that says we're going to eat X, Y, and Z and that's it. And it's going to be perfect. And then the firefighters like, yeah, we're going to binge kind of thing. And there'll be a critic in there too, kind of making that system go. What those two parts rarely recognize is they're protecting this from the same wound they're just going about it in completely different ways and yeah they <laughs> do not like each other until they realize that and they can turn and see you and they can see that they actually are afraid of the same things and wanting the same things sometimes you can get parts like that to cooperate even without getting to the inner child and you know making big changes there once they see that they're on the same team you can get a shift is that a simple framework because let's use the binge eating one. I'm a fitness coach. This is one that I, I see in real life. I, I talk to people about this yeah. where and – and I've recognized this before. It's the same system. The people who who are like, I'm changing my life tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to get on this macronutrient cycle. I'm not, I'm not eating, eating more than 1,200 calories in a day. Mm -hmm. uh, and then – and the weekend comes around couple days later and then they come back in and they're like hey man i had 16 pizzas on saturday night and i drank 12 beers i don't know what happened it just kind of and right. and my whole thing is like you're literally living on these two extremes mm -hmm. and i recognize that that's the same mindset in a way that's plaguing it yes. but i think you explaining it in this internal families systems context integrates that in, in me and my brain even more. And it makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. is pointing that out enough. I know you kind of said that, or what are some other ways that people can come to these realizations and, and stop these thought cycles? Well, here's part of the problem is that your logical thinking part that's usually in what I would call the, your, the driver's seat of your life 
is not able to communicate with these parts. So you can tell someone until they're blue in the face. You're, this, is an extreme, this is an extreme way of your managing something. When they say, I'm going to count all my macros starting tomorrow and it's going to be amazing. I'm going to stay under 1,200 calories and whatever it is you just said. And you recognize, like, that's extreme. I would call it, okay, there's an extreme manager. So we know there's an extreme firefighter matched to it. But if you just tell them logically, it's not going to – I mean, have you tried that? How does it go? What what you say? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Have you tried? Have you tried that much? Like explaining, this is kind of an extreme thing. It's going to be hard to balance the opposite. Yeah, I usually point out. Well, I, I never, I never tell people directly. I've always, I try to sort of get them to come to their own conclusion on mm. this. But yeah, um, it's always usually with met with a question of like, why do you feel the need to? get on this rid, rigid diet mm, plan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then to find whatever it. their answer is usually results in me saying like, do you see any similarities between your desire to be this structured and rigid with your binging episodes, et cetera. And mm. generally people start to see that. Yeah. What you could, what you might add is just ask them to notice, like when you think about the rigidity that you want to set up, what do you notice in your body? And let them sit with it. It can be real uncomfortable. Okay, now let's imagine you're you're out, you know, this weekend, and there's pizza around. And you want some? What do you notice in in your body? And it's a way to to kind of really feel into those two parts, and might be able to see some similarities there. But the way you're doing it sounds great. Okay, yeah. something that I have a hard time with too is I love self-improvement uh -huh. the most a person can change i hope that happens to me over the course of my life i love to look for the one percent thing that's going to make me feel a little bit better about myself and my existence mm -hmm. and a lot of people just aren't like that you know mm -hmm. when i'm working with a client who wants to improve their fitness i just can't comprehend because my brain doesn't work like this if somebody's coming in to work out how come they don't want to figure out everything that they possibly could about fitness and nutrition and, and how they can improve their lifestyle to make this more uh, efficient and successful, et cetera. And, and so it sounds like this system is very self-regulated. You are almost a guide for an individual to have these conversations with themselves and develop relationships with their parts and figure out where they are located and mm -hmm. what they mean and where they came from. Right. And so how, how much of this process is you guiding or, or showing and how much of it is dictated by the individual that you're, you're speaking with? Well, where we go is dictated by the person's system. And I'll explain that in a minute. But the first thing that really came up for me when you said all of that was the part of you that wants to always be better and always get that 1% better. Right. Um, I would be curious about that part. Right. And that might feel like, of course that that's, of course that's a good thing um, might be coming up, but with where we go, and I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're asking when we decide what part we're going to work with, say we want to work with um, something that's a little scary to the person like drinking, 
there might be, they might, I might say, okay, how do you feel toward that part? And it's like, well, I really hate it. Okay. Well, how come you hate it? Well, it's wrecking my life for all these reasons. Okay. That makes sense. That's usually accurate. Um, great. Can we thank that part? And then we ask it to, to soften. Okay. How do you feel toward it now? Um, a little bit curious or a little bit scared or whatever, or they might say, well, I really hate it. Okay. <laughs> so what did we miss? Can you tell me more about why you hated it? Cause we just listened from the one that hates it, right. And asked it to soften and we thought it did, but it's back. Cause it, it still really hates it. When the one that hates it will not soften, there's something important there. And we just switch to the part that, that hates it. So in that sense, the system is going to say, where do we need the work most right now? And that's where it is, you know, and that we can't decide, we can't say, well, we're going to work with that other thing because you got that hate in your body. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get to the drinking part. That's how it dictates what you're doing. Does that make sense? That makes sense. It's, it's one of those things that in talking to you, I'm like, maybe this is just, something reserved that it's a like it's like everything it's a journey that you as an individual need to go on uh with yourself you know like you pointed out in me that i just said i have this thing inside me that i want i want to just keep improving one percent better you know like i view that as a good thing i feel like i'm an individual that i've done a lot of self-work i've never spoken to a therapist Mm -hmm. uh, about certain things that i've been through but i've thought about them a long time i've opened up to people in my life about some of these things Mm -hmm. i've thought what does this mean to me and how has this impacted me and so i feel like i've got a pretty good sense of where some of my traits and characteristics come from i i read uh the body keeps the score for a class that i took in college and Mm -hmm. um it was a writing course and my professor at the time i think she still does a lot of work on trauma and healing uh, through writing and helping other people do things like that yeah but I remember at the time I was running, I was training for a 50 mile ultra marathon. Wow. I, through that whole class, I came to this sort of conclusion that I I was doing this because of things that I had been through. Mm -hmm. And it was, there, there were negative things that I had been through. Sure. And I didn't know that at the time I did this thing because I thought it was awesome and I wanted to see if I could do it. But Mm -hmm. that same part that was, improve yourself, get, get better every single day, evolve, test yourself, see what you're made of. Right. Yeah. That came from things that weren't so great. Mm-hmm. Sure. This kind of, I don't want our conversation to get too convoluted in, in terms of parts and where they come from and how that can sort of be confusing. I would just maybe urge anybody who's listening that's curious about it to read the book. Cause I feel like that is pretty helpful in, explaining it in a concise way that makes sense. Sure. Um, something that you've brought up a couple of times is inner child. Mm. This is something I, I'm, I'm not sure about. And I wanted to ask you is the heart of internal family systems getting to that inner child. I'm, I'm curious what the relationship between these two things are. Kind of, but if I, can I respond to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm also open to, I'm I'm also open to being honest about most things on the show. So if like you have questions or feel like it would be productive to ask me things about myself, I'll answer them. Sure, sure. Great. So I also think it's a good thing 
And I think a lot of all of our all the good things that we do are done by parts because self doesn't really do much of anything. And one way to kind of people sometimes make the mistake of of having some value on self that is more than parts. A nice way to look at it is like parent and children. Um, they don't have any difference in value. They just have different roles. But um, the reason I had some curiosity around that part in you was actually around the, why isn't everybody else like this? It's just a little bit of an activation. It felt like, or sounded like, which again, isn't even a bad thing. It's just a thing to be curious about. That was all. So just wanted to clarify that. You mean the piece of me that's like questioning why isn't everybody else like that? Right. Could be, uh, what, what term did you use? Activation? Yeah. I remember. What does that mean? Oh, what do I mean by that? Um, to me, when I say that, it means a response to a wound. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Which could be a really small thing. There are so many um, things. Every wound isn't something horrible. You know, we hold our little ones hold on to things that seem like not a big deal, you know, mm. and it isn't even something that has to be looked at either, but that's me saying, what if you don't look at that part? Like, that's okay. That's just my kind of opinion on that. But it's yeah, you saying that make, made me real, like initially jump to, I think part of improving myself, I've focused heavily on kindness and uh, like care for others. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I, I think is important because just negative interactions with kids in high school, like you said, nothing, middle school, high school, I was overweight when I was younger. I, I got teased for it a bit. Um, and so yeah, that that's not that's not something that is like horribly traumatic for me. I've talked actually about that on the show before, but um, I wonder if that has something to do with it. You know, that betterment. I have so much focus on kindness and care and honesty that uh, when I see that other people don't value that as highly, it, it's a it's like a confusing thing for me. Sure. What I always say is when we the more healing we do, the more we have choice about what we're doing. Hmm. So are we, you, whoever choosing something like kindness because it feels like we have to, or because we just can kind of be one way, another way of thinking about it. Maybe in a kindness isn't, isn't the great example. That makes sense. Something that stood out to me a lot from the book was uh, the eight C's, which mm -hmm. are essentially traits that you exhibit when you are self-led, when you are, I, I guess to relay off of what you just said, the more healing you've done, the more self-led you can be, right? Calmness is something that stood out to me because I feel like, especially in the last couple of years, as I've done more work on myself, that sort of calmness, peace is something that I very much feel yes. uh, and have benefited the most, I think, from yeah. is that. And it, I would say that's the opposite of what I meant by reactive. It sounded like a reaction. It sounded like not calm. Mm. Yeah. 
Can we talk about the eight C's? Yes, but you asked about inner children. Oh, that's right. So wanna, let's go. Let's keep going. Do you want to do that? No, let's do inner children. Sorry, okay. I got off track. Sure. No, that uh, because I took us off track. Um, it's it's a great question because often the more you know about the model, the more that that seems like it is the case because we have this pattern of okay, I'm doing this thing in my life that's wrecking things like I'm binging or whatever it is. And I want to fix it. And the way that we fix it is to get to the inner child. And so you go in with that agenda that you're going to get to that inner child and, and heal them. And then the binging will stop. Um, in order to actually have that happen, for one thing, we need the part that that's anxious for it to happen and wants it to happen to hang out somewhere else, right? To un, to be unreact, unactivated. Um, and so in a sense, yes, it's a big deal getting to that wound because the protective part can then relax. But the real magic of IFS is getting self to part relationships, even if it's just self to protective parts. Like if you have say that binging part, if that one can actually turn around and see that there's some light, some love, whatever it is at the, at the core of our being as a resource, for it, that changes things a lot. It's a big shift. In other words, what you're saying is, is a, a part of you that is being used and, and is outwardly showing negative traits like binge eating could be turned around and those same qualities that make you binge eat could be put towards a more positive thing. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you, when I say turn around, I literally mean like a person turning around and looking at someone else. Because those parts there, if you think of them as vigilant, you're looking for danger. You're scanning for danger. I'm going to binge because there's danger. If they can literally turn around and see that there's a soul here that can, that is a resource for safety, then it's going to relax a little bit. Okay. My framework for how I view this in my in my head is kind of like inside out. There's like there's like a, a long table and there's a bunch of characters and figures lined up that all serve different purposes. I like to to invite people to envision a campfire with you sitting there and then you can and then we can invite all of your parts to come see each other, see you. <clears throat> okay. I guess I'm still at a bit of a loss for how the inner child affects all this is the inner child a part or does it just play a role in establishing what parts you have it's definitely a part and here, uh, let me give you an example and i always i like to show a photo when i talk about this because it's so gruesome but i i, I don't know if i can do that on the on this um a few months ago i had poison ivy that was like horrific and i ended up on my thighs i couldn't get dry, i couldn't walk properly i had these enormous blisters and um, I was on a bunch of medication and I would go to, to sleep at night, lay on my back. I can't even roll over because of these ridiculous blisters. And every night before I got to bed, I would have this little fear bubble up that I was going to die. I was going to go to sleep and not wake up. And I'd say, it's okay. You know, I know that's a young part and we're not going to die. And I would be fine and go to sleep because I can talk to parts that way, even though I don't know a lot about that part. And I could text an IFS friend and say, I have a young part that thinks we're going to die. All this poison ivy thing. And we could chuckle about that. 
Well, I decided, you know what, I'm curious about that. And so I'm going to really sit with it and sit with the physical feelings of it. And because I, I have practiced it enough, it was really easy for me to do that. And this was recently, this is weeks after the poison ivy's gone and everything, but boom, I get a memory. And I had, when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, I jammed my wrist with my thumbnail and I got a cut and I was picking at it. I got infected and it ended up with like three inches of blisters, just like this bizarre infection. We went to the doctor. Mom, my mom brought me to the doctor. My mother was very dramatic. And the doctor says, oh, that's herpes. And my mother went, oh, and then that moment between her gasp and the doctor saying, no, 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 no. Because of course she thought I'd been molested. I didn't know that she thought that I thought I was going to die. I literally remember thinking that, oh, I'm going to die. And so this is not, a, I guess it's not a great example because I don't know what protector there is here. It just kind of got frozen in my brain and we went on, I went on and maybe, maybe it didn't activate other parts to, to protect that. Maybe it did. That's not something I've wondered about, but it was, that inner child was getting activated by the blisters on my legs and coming up and being like, oh my God, we're going to die. You know? I think that is actually a really great example because it's almost separate and, and specific because mm -hmm. now I'm starting to see the connection of the comments you made at the beginning of this conversation about the subconscious mm -hmm. and how sometimes these things that we've been through that we don't even remember at all are affecting our thoughts and feelings and reactions. And with this IFS system and, and essentially becoming in tune with your inner workings, it gives you the tools and resources to uncover some of these memories and 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 sit with them and become curious to use your words and mm -hmm. that allows us to establish a better relationship essentially through becoming better informed about the things that we've been through yeah yeah if you ask me my list of traumas and no in no list would i have put that moment at the doctor just was, you know it was a moment i got scared i went on but it was frozen nevertheless yeah yeah it's it's weird that you know that brings my mind to like the suppression of memory mm. uh I'm, I'm sure you deal with that a lot i and don't get memories that people weren't aware of i get memories a lot that they thought weren't a big deal and okay. they were like oh that can't be that that doesn't even there's not even anything there. And once the parts relax and we actually go to that little one, it can be, you know, the, the feelings and the emotions are enormous, you know? Yeah. I've, uh, I've experienced some like suppression of memory myself. Uh, and it, ever since that's happened again, I've, I've opened up to some people about this in my life, but ever since then it's put this curiosity in me of like, what else have I forgotten? that's happened to me sure. that's like an interesting question that i ask myself often yeah. and, and, and in many ways it it's probably still affecting how i think and feel right mm -hmm. things you things you don't remember absolutely yeah yeah think about the first year or two of life that you know babies that are not well cared for that's incredibly impactful even though we don't remember it how much control do we have over the inner child do we have control over the stories that we're telling ourselves what they mean. I'm curious about how you 
your framework for that? I don't think so. I really don't like this idea of like going in and talking to your inner child because that's just a part. What we need to do with our inner child and its children is listen. You know, they have so much to say and then they have so many gifts. I mean, think about the white little ones get in so much trouble half the time is because they're so loud. They're so exuberant, right? All that energy and joy and um, it's, it's beautiful. So listening is really important, but it's hard to do because there's, there's almost always going to be parts in the way. That's one of the reasons it's nice to have a person to work with. So you can really get to that little one with an open it, heart and, and hear them. They'll say things that you don't remember. Like when, when we want to bring them out of where they're stuck in time, sometimes we'll just bring them into your, into the present and into your heart, but you can bring them anywhere they want to go. And they'll say, Oh, I want to go to that horse farm. And the person will be like, I completely forgot about that horse farm. I loved that place. So that kind of thing that doesn't come up when you just go into them and say, Hey, inner child, blah, blah, blah. No. Yeah. I guess I'm sure that's what you, you say you, you recommend and you always see more value in having somebody to essentially guide you uh, with this sort of thing. What's a good starting point for somebody who, who wants to uncover these various parts of themselves and seek the inner child and, and, and start looking at some of the subconscious? Well, I mean, I, I would say I do and I don't. It's kind of a both and because you can say we aren't actually broken and we can heal and you, and you can say we have wounds and it's, it's helpful to have someone help you heal. I think that both of those are true. Um, it can be hard to do IFS by yourself, but it's not, it's not impossible. And the first thing I would say to do is to sit in your body. If you want to learn about something that's going on for you, some part of you, the first thing to do is get in a relationship with the parts that have feelings about that. So if, if I keep binging keeps coming up, whether it's drinking or eating, if you're binging and you hate it, get in a relationship with the part that hates it. Take a while, like really practice that. Cause it's not going to be as hard and um, it's going to be necessary too to get that one to, to, to trust you enough to say, okay, you can go talk to that binging part. Because it's going to be like, you can't talk to that binging part because it's going to take over. And we're going to binge more because it doesn't know that you are there and you're going to talk to it. It thinks you just want it to take over. Is it just when you have those thoughts and feelings, just taking a second to stop and, and just sit with it and see what comes up? Yeah, that's certainly one way. Yeah. Yeah. It can be harder in the moment. Yeah. So, so you are kind of proposing find space and time when you are, everything's okay. Yeah. And then, you know, sit down, close your eyes, meditate, whatever it is, do something that allows you to turn inward and, and, and start to explore the, the guy or, or gal you are when you bench. Absolutely. Cause if you, that's kind of the kindergarten route, which you should do first. If you're trying to get into the part of you that rages in, on the road when someone cuts you off as a first exercise that's not going to work because you're not going to be thinking about it you're just going to be pissed off last thing you're going to be thinking about is parts mm. that's something i think a lot of people can relate with and and that's a good explanation for the validity of this stuff is that i would imagine most people listening who have everybody's done something like that binge ate whatever mm -hmm. they feel 
you feel like a different person when you do those things. Yes. I, I've shared a funny meme on my Instagram story the other day that was like me at 2 a.m. And it's this, uh, do you know what a doge is? No. It's, it's a, it's a very common uh, meme. It's just this dog. It's a Corgi, I think, but it's yeah, this okay, illustrated yeah. Corgi. And the Corgi's got this jacked physique. It's got like a human jacked physique. And it says, I will, I will wake up tomorrow and conquer myself and everybody. Um, I will, I will take over the world and achieve all of my wildest dreams, stuff along that context. Uh And then the next image was me at 8 a.m. And it was this like puny version of the Corgi. Like, it's cold. I don't want to get out of the blankets. Mm. Um, I'm not going to the gym today or whatever. And, you know, like that's a very simple example of parts at play, I think, where I feel like different people all the time. I always say I said this on a podcast. My jujitsu classes are in the evening and Joel in the evening is different than Joel in the morning. And after like 10 a.m., I have no desire to exercise anymore. But before 10 a.m., I love to exercise. So knowing that about myself, I always do my workout in the morning. Yeah. For a while, uh, some time ago, I was noticing that in the evening, I'm really pessimistic. Like, oh, everything's terrible. And I realized like, oh, these are parts trying to get me to go to bed. Like, I'm tired. Because again, your parts aren't like real smart all the time. Like if I tell you life is terrible, maybe you'll go to bed. You know what I mean? It's like, so now if, if I do have a pessimistic thought on the evening, it's like, oh yeah, hello, I'm tired. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is sometimes that's easier to see in other people when someone kind of is losing it and we're like, why are they? They're acting like they're six, but they're probably blended, as we would say, with the part that is six. You know, it's, it's a little easier sometimes to see that in other people. For folks that can't, I don't have parts, you know, I hear that a lot too, not from clients, but from people that were just talking about the the system um, can be easier to see in others first. Yeah. When's the last time you snapped at a coworker or your significant other? And then two hours later you were like, man, I can't believe I, I reacted like that. You know, that's all the proof you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Snickers actually is on board with IFS. It's like, you're not you when you're hungry. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought there um, with – we were talking about uh, obesity and, and and binging as it relates to uh, uh, parts of you, exploring your parts, right? Mm-hmm. I'm somebody who – I've done a pretty good deal of breath work and experimentation with meditation. Started, I think I started when I was like 19. I did. I, I, I meditated for five to ten minutes every morning for like an entire semester of school and – after that semester, it's changed to different forms of mindfulness for me. You know, when I'm training for a race, I my running counts as a form of my meditation. You know, mm-hmm. exercise does. I've, I've like everything gone in and out of doing this my entire life. Right now, because it's cold in Virginia, I I have my ice bath, and that's my form of meditation that I do every day. I just do like a simple box five breathing pattern, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if you told me okay, Joel, go sit down when you're feeling good and start exploring parts of yourself. I think I, w- I would have a pretty easy time doing that. Like I, yeah. I know how to meditate. I can get myself in the mode, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure that the answer to this is it depends on the person, right? But I would imagine that most things in relation to IFS, take, it takes practice to learn how to mm-hmm. explore yourself. Yes. And it it is just so true that everybody is different. And I always think of it in terms of the person's system of parts, because if there is a lot of extremeness or a lot of 
uh, trauma, the system is going to not trust that there's a self there and not be open to exploring. And that's where that, like, I don't have parts can sometimes in that kind of thing, or, or even if that's not the, the wording or the feeling, it's like, it can be like, well, I can't find anything, you know, and that can be frustrating, but like, you can then just get in touch with that frustrated part that you can't do it. I always say like, start with the outer layer, whatever that outer layer is. Something that I really admire about IFS is that there is a very high personal responsibility that is required for it. Mm -hmm. And I I was contemplating this idea today. I think personal responsibility, it's so weird to me how it's, it's hard to talk about personal responsibility right now in this Mm -hmm. time. And it's almost even like it's become a social issue. Like Mm -hmm. to say you need to take personal responsibility is like a stance somehow that uh, I think most people would, not necessarily right leaning, but it's weird that to say that is is weird because there's nothing that I want more than than freedom to explore myself and my environment and my world and the people that I get to do this life with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this leads me to the eight C's because I feel like it's all sort of in that same realm, right? Mm-hmm. To take personal responsibility is to also realize that you already have all of the tools inside of you to lead yourself to a better life or a better understanding of you. So what are the eight C's? You know, I, I always have to think about it. And I wrote down the other day, there are five that always come to me. There are eight altogether, but connection, which is obvious. I don't need to define these connection, compassion, curiosity, courage and clarity those always come easy when i am because i knew you were going to ask me this i was like what are they again and the other three are calm confidence and creativity and i i wrote them down in those two sets simply because they seem to me there's a little bit of of either overlap calm for example it's interesting that that one stood out so strongly i feel like everybody is going to have a different relationship with these traits and there are others people talk about the p's and the i's like intuition and things like this but the eight c's have always been a way of assessing how much self energy is present because we talk about the self as if it's a separate thing from parts and i know i talked about it that way in this in this hour but it's also just an energy that all the parts have access to so if the person is calm then I, and I'm working with the person and I, and I sense calmness. I know there's some self energy present. Um, but for me, like confidence and courage are really similar. That's just me. And creativity is an interesting one. That's really important to me, but I think it's really important to my parts. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know. I know that self is creative because when we, when we do help a little one, when it's stuck, because we didn't talk a lot about what happens when we get to an inner child. The first thing we do is witness. That's what I was talking about, listening. You, you, you listen because so often we didn't feel heard and understood when we were suffering when we were little, in whatever way. Instead of trying to, the first thing sometimes parts want to do is go and fix it. Oh, I want to make them feel better. But then they're still invalidated, right? Like when the kid, when you, when you scrape your knee and someone says, oh, you're okay, you're okay. Well, well what if they're not? And they don't feel like they are, you know? little bit invalidating so we don't do that um and self 
and or parts with self-energy can be creative around helping the inner child. Because after we witness, we also offer to change something. You know, there's a redo that we can do, you know. And often that's just, a, that can just be a hug to the little one, but it can be talk to the parents or talk to whoever. It can be go and retrieve something that got lost, that the kid's heartbreak broken over. So there is um, some nuance here for those words. They're simply describing a lack of extreme stuff, right? That, that agenda-driven stuff. What stands out to me with the eight C's and why I like them so much is because I feel like the last two years of my life, um, I have gone through this period where I've essentially been like, this is the most important thing to me. This is the most important thing to me. And in many ways, those things that I've defined for myself, like, for example, peace, I still think peace is probably one of the most underlying valuable things that I want to yeah. achieve for myself. Yeah, great. Um, but they all, all of the things that I've been striving to achieve in the last couple of years have been in line with some of these things. Mm -hmm. And for, for example, um, curiosity. One of the reasons why I started this podcast was because I have this curiosity. I've always, I've always been curious about lots and lots of things. Like if it's, if it's, if it exists, I want to learn about it. And yeah, nice. Um, not only do I feel better knowing that when I am exemplifying some of these traits, the eight C's, mm -hmm. it, it almost reassures me that I'm on the right path. Yeah. But when I, take on any project or endeavor I never had language for it before and now having read the book and talking mm -hmm. to you mm -hmm. I can sort of use these eight C's as a compass that helps point me in the right direction like does this thing give me calmness confidence curiosity etc yeah. it's funny you say you can't remember some of them sometimes in CrossFit there's 10 <laughs> general physical skills that uh -huh. Uh, you build your fitness with, and I can never remember any of them. I always explain it to people. I was like, CrossFit defines 10 general physical skills that we want to improve, and I can't remember like half of them. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, anyways, I got off yeah. track there. I That's think right. that these, at the very least, serve as great compasses to shoot for and guide us. And when you are feeling these things, it it points out that you're on the right track. Totally, totally. Curiosity is an interesting one because we can be – curious sometimes i find myself really curious about a story someone's telling me and i know that's coming from a part when i'm in a session in real life that's not something that i worry about but i don't want to get drawn into like off track by following a story in a session but curiosity around like um like when you said i know it's a small thing but but um they always want to be one percent better and why isn't everyone else like oh what's i'm curious about if that was reactive, that's the kind of curiosity, this kind of like curious around other people's parts. No. Mm. Yeah. Well, I suppose you probably have a bit of a meta relationship with this thing, right? Cause it's like you, <laughs> sure. you, you are viewing yourself through this lens that you understand very well, but you're also helping other people do it. So okay. I, I, I suppose at times it, it can be difficult to navigate what feeling is what, and is yeah. this, is this, coming from an unbiased objective lens or is it a part of me that is totally i need to know. track my parts when i am in session with someone 
because I mean, my tar- cards can get triggered and I might not even notice like, oh, I want to help like this. Like, where is that? Wait, is that coming from self or is that coming from a card? Or I might say so. Look, I'm, I have a part that's, if, especially if someone I've been working with for a while who totally gets it and gets the language. Do you mind if I speak for a part that has a that has something to say about what you just said? You know, ask for permission to do that. I feel like talking to you, I could we could ramble on about this stuff, and because it is it is complex, and I actually think I'm going to probably put it at the beginning of this episode that, like, the nature of this conversation is always going to be confusing because there's a lot at play. Yeah. But I think something that we've been able to do as we've gone through this is we've, we've had an honest conversation, which is at least for me, one of the things I value, but an underlying important trait that is necessary for information and learning, you know, like you need to, you need to be honest with yourself about, what you know, if you're a listener, you need to be listening to people who are being honest with each other. Um, I know we've been talking here for like an hour. And so I want to, I just want to put it back to you. Is there anything else that you feel like we should talk about or add when it comes to IFS? I thought that was really good. Um, that was fun. It was a fast hour and you had a list of questions. So I don't remember what they were, if we missed anything. I I went way off, way off okay, track. Cool. I, cool. Just kind of talk to you yeah i yeah. did have one more question um sure. and it's an idea that i've had and i would like to, i think you're a good person to ask this to i didn't come up with this i don't think I, i've never i've never heard anybody talk about it in the way that i've come to understand it but nature versus nurture is a conversation that is discussed a lot and i think that it applies to this conversation because both nature and nurture have such an impact on Mm -hmm. the people we become and the various parts of us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've come up with this idea that I've labeled in my brain, nature and nurture Mm -hmm. versus conscious reasoning. Mm -hmm. And as we go through life, which is largely controlled by nature and nurture, I think most people would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. We also have this ability to think about ourselves and our place in the world and our nature and nurture and all the things that have happened to us, right? And we get to choose what some of these stories mean to us or not necessarily choose, but play a role in uncovering some of the complexities of these truths, right? And I think we've sort of talked about this idea underlying some of these conversations, but I'm curious what your thoughts and opinions are on that. Well, the way I would kind of look at it is that there are, I do believe there are things about our, I say nature, but that's not to avoid using that word, our personality that are there when we're born. And depending on what happens, say there's, since we've been talking about trauma and then protective parts, the trauma happens. And now the parts that say never again, have a cho- what tool are they going to pick up? As I said, it's usually not a great tool because they're because we do it when we're kids. But like, I'm going to be the class clown now. It's not available to everybody, depending on their personality, to make up for some hurt that they got. I'm going to isolate is what a lot of other personalities might come up with the exact same trauma, but how we react to it is going to, I think, be largely dependent on like, what's available to our psyche. 
Very good. That's what comes I, up for me. I think that's a great place to end it. Is there any place or things that you'd like to plug in here, social media, where you put out information, content, where people can find more from you? I haven't been for a while. I was growing an Instagram account and it's so hard to get information, to get the the juice of IFS across in that kind of little tidbit. And plus I got really busy and I'm actually really happy about the fact that I'm not trying to drive a Instagram account anymore. Uh, I mean, I have a website. It's we are multi, we are multitudes at XYZ, just because that's like everything is available there because it's a new ending. Um, I don't have a lot of availability, but you can certainly check out my webpage if you're interested. Yeah. All right. Very good. I'll, I'll be sure to include it. Cool. Dr. Jen Patterson, thank you very much for doing the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Good People. If you enjoyed our conversation, again, there are resources available to you in the show notes to check out more about internal family systems. Before you leave, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider giving the show a rating. It really does help us out a ton. If you really enjoyed the episode, please share it with someone you love, perhaps your grandma. We'll see you next time.